known Ron for many, many years. His Sabra, Israeli wife, is with him here this morning, which is an extra blessing for us. She came to us in Maryland, I don't know how many years ago, 32 years ago. I'll let him introduce her. Uh, Ron's been to Bible school, has sat under some of the best folks. He was a part of Brownsville, first as a student, then a teacher. Yeah. And, uh, and he carries a wonderful anointing. Um, we consider him a son in our home, and we can prove it. But um, I know he has something in his heart this morning, so would you open up your hearts this morning and let's receive our friend Ron Cantor. Ron Cantor. Hallelujah. Is there any um, Jewish, you're of Jewish heritage, grandmothers in the room? Just raise your hand. You're Jewish, you were born Jewish, and you have grandchildren. That works too. <laughs> Just doing the biological math. If you have great-grandchildren, then you must have grandchildren, right? All right. I want to get that straight. So stand up if that's you. You are a Jewish woman and your grand-grandma, or great-grandma, or great-great-grandma. That works. You can just get in on it any way you want to. I just want to pray for your grandchildren that the Lord, just keep standing if that's you, just stay standing up, that the Lord will give you grace and favor. There's a special relationship between grandmas and grandchildren. And uh, even if the parents are working against you or against the kingdom of God. So Father, right now we just pray right now for these grandmas for grace, grace and favor in the lives of their grandchildren, Father. In the name of Yeshua, that they would be able to win their grandchildren to Yeshua, Father. That they would have a favor on them that their grandchildren would be attracted to, no matter what the parents say. In Yeshua's name, amen. Okay, so uh, before we get into the Word, I just want to share a few things about... Um, about us, about what we do, and uh, are those videos available that I, we sent, do you know? Video guy. We, we got a couple minutes before we get there, so. Um, so, my name is Ron Cantor, and I uh, am the son-in-law of Paul Wilbur. <laughs> he actually, Paul gave away uh, Ilana to me in our wedding because her father had passed away about six months before and so it was a, a sad time but it was wonderful of Paul to stand in. He also was the cantor in our wedding, sang beautifully. He led the band during the reception <laughs> and rumor has it that he was the janitor at the end of the night <laughs> cleaning up. We don't have pictures to prove it but he, he claims it's true. It's in his heart. He's a servant, you know? 
So we're really blessed to be with you, to be with Paul. I love to minister together with Paul. We always have a lot of fun when we're able to do that. And um, so I work with, uh, we've done so many things over the years. As Paul said, we were in the Brownsville Revival. Um, we've lived in Ukraine, Hungary. Uh, we now live in Israel for the past 16 years. Uh, we led a congregation called Tiferet Yeshua for several years before turning it over to a native-born Israeli. Uh, Tiferet Yeshua was the first spirit-filled, Hebrew-speaking-only congregation in Israel. Now, I, you, you might think, well, that would be normal, just like you're an English-speaking congregation because you're in an English-speaking nation. But for many, many years, decades and decades, congregations in Israel, they translated either from English to Hebrew, Hebrew to English, from English to Russian to English to Hebrew to Spanish. And uh, Ari and Shira Sokoram, who birthed the congregation in 1995, they said, we want to reach native-born Israelis. And they're not responding when they hear English, Russian, Spanish. So they went to Hebrew. Got a lot of people offended. How ridiculous is that? We live in Israel. People paid a heavy price so that Hebrew would be the spoken language. If you've ever read the story of Eliezer ben Yehuda, it's fascinating. You know, he came to Israel, told his wife to be, they were his fiance. You know, he said, from this day forward, we're only speaking Hebrew. Now, here's what you don't know is nobody, nobody spoke Hebrew as an everyday language when he said that to his wife. And his wife did not know Hebrew. And yet, from that day forward, they only spoke Hebrew. She knew she was marrying a fanatic. But she bought into it. She, she caught that vision. And they moved to Israel. They started a, a girls' school. They started a newspaper. He was excommunicated from Judaism for the sin of taking the holy language of Hebrew and turning it into a mundane, everyday language. But he wouldn't give up. They wanted Yiddish to be the language of the Hebrew nation or the Jewish nation uh, or even Germans. Can you imagine? This was before the Holocaust. Uh, and then they had a kid. They had a son, Itamar, and, uh, or Ben Sion. Change his name later to Itamar. Uh, ben Yehuda. And Ben Sion would be the first child in 2,000 years where Hebrew would be his native tongue. Can you imagine the spiritual warfare? We learned at that same conference a lot about the unseen world. You know, that there's a whole unseen economy, cities, or there's angels, demons, warfare that we can't see right now. Now, can you imagine the warfare over this kid speaking Hebrew? Because it's connected to the restoration of Israel and the coming of Yeshua. So a year goes by and this kid did not speak. Now, that's not so bad, you know. But then after two years went by and he didn't speak, people began to tell Ben Yehuda, you're turning your son into an idiot. He would not let anyone near his child who wouldn't speak Hebrew. Three years go by, kid doesn't speak a word. Now everyone's telling him, you're a nut, you're a madman. He's been excommunicated. They've had a funeral for him. Four years old. Right around he was four years old, Ben Yehuda came home one day and he heard his wife doing something really bad. She was singing Russian lullabies to the kid. Now, he was not given to explosions or domestic outbursts, but he got angry at his wife. 
And Ben and, and Ben Sion, the kid, was so upset over this. He said, Laba, don't father. And then it just poured out of him while he was almost four years old. And so uh, that's why we have a congregation that does everything in Hebrew. And uh, thank God we're blessed. You know, Israelis are coming to faith. Um, it's exciting to see. And um, so I uh, recently have been asked by uh, men that I've served for years and years and years, Paul, Eitan Shishkoff, Dan Juster, Asher Intrader, to serve as the CEO for Tikkun International, which this congregation is a part of. We're very excited. The word Tikkun means restoration. We are living in days of restoration, both the restoration of the church and the restoration of Israel. Since the days of Martin Luther, God has been restoring the church. First, the theology, justification by faith. You need to be born again. Then we saw revival, preaching, and John Wesley, George Whitfield. Have you ever studied these guys? These were the first guys to preach with fire in a long, long time. And then Charles Finney, the same thing. People would be convicted of sin at his preaching, and they'd bang on his door. He would preach a whole message and not tell people how to get born again. He'd let them wallow in their sin and guilt overnight. They'd bang on his door in the middle of the night and saying, what must we do? A little different than us saying, quick, pray this prayer before the moment leaves. Then we had the gifts of the Spirit. William Seymour, a one-eyed black man. Talk about humility. He sat outside of a racist Bible college that would not let him in because he was black. And instead of getting mad and angry and blowing it up, which is what I would have done, he sat outside the door and listened. And God honored that humility. And the whole speaking in tongues came back into the church healings, apostolic, prophetic. And I, we are in days of restoration. Of course, the restoration of Israel, 1948 Israel nation, 67 Jerusalem is restored. So that's what Tikkun is about. Planting congregations in Israel and the U.S. all over. And I want to give you a free book. I'm preaching today on the coming end time awakening. And I have a book that I wrote on this. And I wrote it. It's funny how, why I wrote it. I never would have written this book if a pastor in Israel, Jewish guy, challenged my dear friend Asher and Trader. We were in an intense meeting with all these pastors. And they were upset. And one of them said, where is the Bible say that there's going to be an end-time revival. And I suddenly thought for a minute, how would I answer that? And I didn't have an answer. I believed it. And so I went home and wrote a book. <laughs> That's literally what happened. A week later, I had a book. Okay, I, now I can present it. And I'm going to do that. I want to give you that book free. All you have to do is sign up for our newsletter, and we will send that to you. So if I can start that over here, and I'll give this one here to Paul. Paul, you want to get on our newsletter. You're going to really like it. <laughs> Again, you probably already get five or six copies. You can't find the videos? I can send it. Are you able to do YouTube from here? Okay, so I'm going to email you the email I sent yesterday, and I bet it'll get to you. I just need, I'll tell you what, I'm going to, I did. Don't feel bad. It, it happens sometimes. Uh, we're going to find it right now. Mm -hmm. 
So in the meantime, I want to introduce my lovely, lovely wife, Ilana, and she's going to come and share a few words while I, while you're distracted, I'm going to find these emails. Shabbat shalom, you all. It's so nice to be in Colorado. It's almost like half heaven. You know, I'm like, I come and the mountain, it's so beautiful, but I just uh, want to come and bless you from Israel. Hi, Paul and Luen. Uh, they're like my parents, you know, parents, friends, uh, so much, we've been so much together and it's wonderful and we have our own exciting joke between us, so they will know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so um, I just, uh, you know, as when I go and I don't really speak and take my husband's time, but I just feel like, um, you know, and I was traveling from a few churches in America and God just giving me this word of uh, Jesus is simple. And we make it too complicated. And, and he just wants your heart and your love and want to be intimate with you. And for me, this is, it's all about intimacy with God and knowing him and loving him and um, Spending time with him. And, uh, you know, and I was, you know, driving here. We were a few days here in, uh, in Colorado. And I was driving and I was seeing this, what do you call it, glaciers? What do you call this thing when the, the, the snow comes? Glaciers? Avalanche, whatever. What? No, when the snow comes. Avalanche, avalanche, and, and I was thinking, you know, it's like I would keep seeing him and seeing him, and I'm like, God, what is it? What is it? But I just felt God was saying that, get ready, they're coming. They are coming to fill up these churches because they see all this beauty, and it's not enough, but they're seeking for something more holy and more intimate. So for me, is, uh, there's not, nothing like the intimacy of God. Yeah. And because I've been a missionary, and I love mission, and wherever I stand, I encourage you to go to a mission trip. It will change Amen. your heart. Amen. Bless you. I just, uh, I just want to confirm to you something about interesting what you, what you spoke there with the Lord to put on your heart. This year, this season has been, I think, um, I don't think we've had, histor it's been historic on the amount of avalanches that we've had yes. in Colorado. And you see it throughout the mountains. It was, it's been profound. So right on the money that we're... Amen. Okay, so real quickly before we get into the word, do we, uh, if, if we have those links, that'd be great. The first one is... Okay, so we do tours to Israel. Paul mentioned last night they, they're doing a tour in September. You should go to that. But if you don't go to that, if that's too soon, Ilan and I will be hosting a tour in December and then one in May. And I just want you to see this two-minute video about... Now, again, it says warning. You're going to want to come to Israel. So if you really don't want to go, then don't watch this video. Go ahead.
is the place to come to have your heart changed. Incredible in so many ways I didn't expect. Best time of my life! anything better than what I've had over the last eight days. If you're thinking about it, go. It's been amazing. I just want to come back. Amen. So if you want to come to Israel with a couple of locals and worship with Messianic believers and congregations in Hebrew, you can go to uptozion.net. And then real briefly, we've got some books for you here. Um, Identity Theft, some of you probably read that. Anybody read this? Oh, wow, praise God. Paul Wilbur, you read it because you, well, it used to say on there. Oh, it's still there. An Engaging Page Turner. Wow, thank you, Paul. So this is a book that I wrote by accident. Um, Siri, nobody's talking to you. <laughs> I, must, I was doing a, uh, we have a television show called Out of Zion, which is on God TV, and we were doing, we were in the Golan Heights, and I was going over the war of 1973, the Yom Kippur War with Syria, and every time I said Syria, the, the, the teleprompter, which was connected to the iPhone, would go berserk, and we couldn't figure it out. It's because, hey Siri. Anyway, so um, I wrote this because I was frustrated, because I would travel and preach and typically get 30, 40 minutes to share my heart, and I've got 16 hours of information. And so uh, rather than being frustrated, I wrote a teaching book, and I figured if two or three people actually liked it, they could get the book, and I finished writing the whole book, and the Lord begins to deal with me to rewrite the whole book as a novel. And I said, well, that's not going to happen, because I don't know that how to do such a thing. You know, my name's Ron Cantor, not John Grisham or Frank Peretti. But you know what happened? I did it. I don't know how I did it, but it, into, the minute I committed to it, for three weeks straight I wrote, and it was like getting on a roller coaster. I had no idea where it was going, but it was awesome. And I, when it was all said and done, I said, this is either the dumbest, cheesiest thing anybody's ever done or it's good. And to my great shock, people really like it. So we have that. We have the sequel to that called The Jerusalem Secret. And then, can you see the resemblance? Uh, that is me uh, giving bar mitzvah. This is my testimony. It's called Leave Me Alone, I'm Jewish, which is what I said to Brian McRae in uh, senior year of high school when he got wonderfully born again and began to tell me about Jesus. I said, leave me alone. I'm Jewish. 
So um, you can get those at the end of the service, and we just have a one-minute video to show you about identity theft, and then we're going to get in the Word of God. Please. Thank you. Long before identity thieves and hackers preyed upon the innocent. Before our security and privacy were at risk. The most sinister act of identity theft took place. And the victim was none other than Jesus Christ, Yeshua, the Jewish Messiah. Welcome. Hallelujah. So get those at the end of the service today, and let's pray. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you for this morning, for your word. We thank you that your word is life. Your word is, it's our food, God. It's our drink. And we just thank you, Lord, that there's still things that we haven't seen that are hidden in your word. So I'm asking today, God, that you would open up our eyes and give us a vision for an end times awakening in Yeshua's name. Amen. Do the scriptures promise an end time awakening? Now, now, if you listen to a lot of preachers, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. Then many of us escape and it gets worse and worse and worse. And then finally, Yeshua comes back. Jesus comes back and, and everything's going to be okay. That's not what I find in the Bible. I, I do believe there's going to be a guy by the name of the Antichrist, and he's going to not be a nice guy, and he will persecute the believers. But I also see an end times move of God before Yeshua returns. I have always had a great passion for revival. When I was a young believer, uh, I used to read books about Charles Finney going from town to town in the northeast of the United States. And wherever he would go, they would hate him. They would be gnashing their teeth. They would be ready to kill him. And then God would show up and the whole town would be converted. Uh, I, I, I would read those books and just cry and say, God, do that again in America. And I remember in 1995, uh, a friend of mine, Dr. Michael Brown, uh, a mentor of mine, went to the Brownsville Revival. Uh, he also carried that desire, that passion. And when he heard that God was moving in Pensacola, he flew down just to be there. And he called me up on the phone and he was trembling. And he said, this is it. This is the real thing. We ended up moving there, being a part of it, teaching in their Bible school. Dr. Brown started a Bible school there. And, and thousands of, of young people came in that Bible school. And millions of people came into the church to experience the presence of God. You see, when revival comes, it changes a whole city. There was one fellow who, his, he was from Georgia. His wife came to the revival and would not come home. 
Now, I don't recommend that. I don't know that it's biblical. But sometimes you're so hungry from God, you do some unbiblical things. And she wasn't going to come home. God's here. I need to stay here. And he was angry. He got in his car and he drove down from Georgia and he was going to bring his wife back. And he walked into that church and boom, he was thrown up against the wall for about two or three hours and he could not move. And by the time he could move, he got born again. Not only did he not take his wife home, they moved to Pensacola and are now in full-time ministry. I remember one night, we used to have baptisms on Friday night, and there was one time that it just ruined me. There was a, 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 a and let me just say this, if there were not ushers in those baptismal pools, people would have drowned. Because the power of God would hit them, and they were, they were going down. And if there were not ushers, forget it. And, and, and if you had to be there to understand it. By the way, let me just say this. There are a lot of things in the book of Acts that if they happened today in our congregations, we'd kick the people out. So don't judge until you look at the fruit. So the next time somebody spits in mud and wants to put it on the eyes of the blind man, just wait until after he prays before you throw him out. We judge not by the action, but by the fruit. So when I talk about people going berserk in a baptismal pool, well, you weren't there. I was there and God was there. And this one little girl comes in and she talks about how her parents were fighting and they got divorced and it was difficult. And in the midst of all that, she came to the meetings and this little girl, I don't know if she was 12 years old, she got born again and, and it was just beautiful. And she goes down, she goes out. Then a woman walks in and she says, you know, I, my husband and I were divorced and we fought all the time. We had a horrible, but my daughter came home from this revival. She was born again and I came and I got born again and, and that was my daughter. And then she goes out. And then a dude comes in, about 35 years old, and he says, you know, I was a horrible husband. I was abusive, you know. But then my daughter gets born again. My wife's getting born. They bring me here. And now I'm born again, and that was my wife and daughter. That's revival. When, it, when, it, when a whole family comes back to G me and my household. So it doesn't really make sense that God would birth this whole thing in the book of Acts and then it's just downhill from there. That just does not make sense to me. Why is the book of Acts in the Bible if not to say, come on, aspire to this? You see, Yeshua said, the works that I do, you will do and greater works than these shall you do because I go to my Father. Because Jesus has gone to the Father and he's interceding for us, we are supposed to be doing greater works. That's a humbling passage. I don't know how I can be doing greater works, but I want to tell you something. In China right now, every miracle that you see in the book of Acts is happening every day. The sick are being healed. The dead are being raised. I have a friend of mine who uh, uh, goes down to Africa and does evangelistic ministry. They've seen many dead people come back to life. And the Bible speaks that this end times revival is very much connected to the salvation 
of the Jewish people. And I'll get to that in a minute. But I want you to open up to John chapter 2. You don't really have to open it up. I'm going to paraphrase the story. But it's a great story. It's a weird story, if I'm honest. Uh, Because alcohol is kind of controversial, right? But I, I lived in the Bible Belt for a few years, you know? And why in the world would Jesus' first miracle be connected to alcohol? I don't know. I mean, are you just looking for trouble, you know? But I want to tell you what happened. It's a wonderful day. Yeah, you ever gone to a wedding? Isn't it fun to go to a wedding? You know, you're, you're, ex- you're excited. You, you get dressed up. And you, you, there's an anticipation about going to I remember once I, I, I had just, it was 1995, 96, and I, I could never blow a shofar. And, uh, and I finally had a breakthrough. It was just a miracle. And, I mean, my neighbor thought there were elephants dying in my house <laughs> until one day. And God, and I won't tell the whole story, but the Lord had me blow it, and really good things were happening. People were getting set free, and it was exciting. And, and I'm on that, and we're going to a wedding that night, and I'm so excited. It's going to a wedding. It's fun. My friend, on an Israel tour, we met this guy, and, and he invited us to his wedding. We came to the wedding, and as I'm driving home from the office that day to pick up Ilana to go to the wedding, the Lord says to me, bring your shofar. Now, you don't know what it's like being married to a lunatic, so... pray for my wife, you know, because you just never know what's going to happen. And so I knew if she saw me walk out the door with a shofar, going to a wedding where we only know one person, the guy getting married, that she would not have been happy. So I hid it. (laughs) And right when we got to this wedding, it was held at the former Iranian embassy in in Washington, D.C., because the Iranians were gone since 79. It's a beautiful building. And I dropped her off because it's raining. Honey, you go in. I love you. I want to serve you. Because I wanted to get the shofar in there. So I dropped her off. And then I went and parked the car. And I walk in, you know, with my shofar. And she sees it. And she's like, oh, no. What is he doing? It's a wedding. I love weddings. And, and, and I'm, I'm wondering, halfway through the wedding, what am I doing with this thing? You know, the people got to be looking at me like, why does he have this weird horn wrapped around his arm? Who is this guy? And uh, I don't, I'm starting to get a little nervous myself. And we get towards the end of the wedding where he says, kiss the bride. And the Lord says, now. <laughs> Ilana's now under a table. I don't know him. I'm single. I came alone. But you know, God is so good. (laughs) The bride came up to me during the reception, and she said, you know what? For six months, we've been looking for somebody to blow the shofar at this wedding, and we could not find anybody. And she said, when I heard the sound of the shofar, (laughs) I waited till I got in the car and said, honey. (laughs) But we get excited to go to a wedding, right? 
And Jesus is going to a wedding. And he, he was human, right? He, God, man. And his disciples are with him. And they go to the wedding. And they're dressed up. And it's going to be fun. And in Israel, let me just tell you, Israel, weddings are different in the Middle East. There's a lot of food. There's a lot of wine. There's a lot of dancing and rejoicing and celebrating. And, and there, there's probably, you see, you read this passage and you just think that Mary, Miriam, just needs a drink. Right? You know, she... She's like, oh, she, because she's freaking out. She's, they, they have, Jesus, they've run out of wine. He's like, woman, didn't even say mommy. Woman, what's that to me? My time has not yet come. But she didn't need a drink. You see, there would be nothing, what we would call in Hebrew, a bushah. A shame, an embarrassment. It would be a great bouchard to invite all your friends and family to a wedding and then run out of wine early in the wedding. I can tell you, I go to weddings in Israel. By the way, when we get invitations to weddings in Israel, we, we call them doch, a ticket. <laughs> because you know it's going to cost you about 500 shekels you know, to go. So we... we so we rejoice too, but <laughs> but I can't imagine going to a wedding in Israel. You guys remember, you know, and then suddenly after just the beginning hors d'oeuvres, there's no more wine. That would be unheard of. That's what's happening here. That's why Miriam's so upset that, that her friends are going to be embarrassed. And so she says, do something. And he's like, no. And she's like, hey, whatever he says, do it. And he's like, oi. But how awesome is that to be the mother of the Messiah, where you can do that? See, if I did that to Yeshua, he would be like, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but with his mom, he's like, fine, I'll obey the biblical commandments and honor my mom. And what does he do? You remember the story? He takes, he fill up these jars full of water. I think those jars, by the way, are pictures of us, that we are, we are four-fifths water, right? But when the Holy Spirit comes on us, our water is turned into wine. And then everyone who tastes us tastes of that good news, of the, the goodness of God. But he takes the servants, they take some of the wine, the water that had been turned into wine, to the master of the ceremonies, and he tastes the wine. And he goes to the bridegroom. And he says, this is good stuff. He says, you're doing it backwards, dude. You, you, you know, most of the time, the way it works is you get a little bit of the, you know, you get the good stuff at the beginning. And then once people are a little tipsy and they don't notice, you bring out the cheap stuff. Right? That's, hey, listen, don't get all religious with me. This is in the Bible. I'm not making this stuff up. And so he says, but you have saved the best for last. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. You see, this weird story, I believe, is in the very first miracle of Jesus because it's prophetic. And Yeshua is saying to us, I have saved the best for last. He is the bridegroom. And this wonderful ceremony has been going on for 2,000 years, but he has saved the best wine for last. Now here's the beautiful part, is when you read the book of Acts, 
That is just normal wine. That's not the good stuff. That's just normal wine. And I'm going to show you that the Bible theologically even states this in the book of Romans. I'm going to get there in a minute. But it's the best wine that is coming. And it's connected, as we're going to see, to the salvation of Israel. And it's already begun. You go to India. You go to China. You go to South. We were just in Nepal. They have gone in the past 10 years from under 1% evangelical Christian to over 10%. That is 2.5 million people, 10% of the nation in just 10 years. God's moving. He's pouring out his best wine now. Now, I want you to go to John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, it's another interesting story. You know the story. Yeshua was talking to the woman at the well, and he reads her mail and says, you're, you know, you've been married five times and the dude you're living with, and she's, whoa, and she goes and gets everybody out from the city to come hear Yeshua, and then he hangs out with them. How long was he there? How long? That, wow, good for you. You're the, and all the times I've preached this, nobody ever knows. You get a cookie downstairs at the end of... Now, those of you downstairs, give her a cookie. Two days. States. Well, the Bible says that a day is as a thousand years. So two days is as 2,000 years. Now after that, Yeshua then goes to the Galilee. And it says, you read him, John 4, they welcomed him. The Jewish people welcomed him in the Galilee. You've read the Bible. They didn't always welcome Many times they tried to kill him. He was in Nazareth. They're like, oh, that's a good word, man. Hey, we're going to kill you now. And he walked through the midst of them. But it says that the Jews welcomed him. So I want you to get this. He starts in Jerusalem for a feast. And then it's time to go home to the Galilee headquarters in Capernaum. And he stops for 2,000 years, if you will, to be with the Gentiles. The Samaritans were Gentiles. Now, I know many of you have probably heard they were half Jews. They were not. They were a, it's what you call a population swap. When the 10 tribes were exiled to Assyria, they sent down the uh, Samaritans from Assyria into Israel. Those are the Samaritans. So he spends 2,000 years, if you will, with the Gentiles only to return to the Jewish people who finally welcomed him. That's a picture of the last 2,000 years. It started in Jerusalem. He died in Jerusalem. He rose from the dead in Jerusalem. He baptized his 120 disciples in Jerusalem. And then he said, guys, Lord, are you going to, at this time, restore the kingdom to Israel? Acts chapter 1, right? You've read that? And, and many pastors, many teachers, I've heard some of the greatest teachers in the world say those dumb, stupid disciples. They still didn't get it. Now, they didn't but they weren't dumb. They had read their Bibles. They understood that when the Messiah comes, the kingdom comes. Zechariah 14, they had read it. His, the, where were they in Acts chapter 1? Anybody? Uh, yeah, Acts 1. Where were they? On the Mount of Olives. Where does Jesus come back to? Zechariah 14, 3. His feet hit them. They think this is it. <laughs> you know, you died. You fooled us with that thing. You know, but now you are here and you're not leaving, pal. 
And he's like, go into Jerusalem and wait for what my father promised. You'll be baptized in the Holy Spirit. You'll be witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. They're like, yeah, whatever. You're staying here. They weren't dumb. And by the way, Jesus never had any trouble rebuking his disciples. Get behind me, Satan. How long must I put up with you? That happened today. You know, Peter would be in the psychologist, you know, dealing with his self-image. He said, Satan, get behind me. And I just prophesied that he was the son of God. Why did he do But he was raising up leaders, not wallflowers. The disciples weren't looking for a safe, what do they call it? Safe space. <laughs> they could handle a hard word from Yeshua. But he didn't rebuke them. He said, it's not for you to know the times and the dates that my father has set by his own authority. In other words, it's going to happen. He will restore the kingdom to Israel. Not now. Now, go wait for what my father's promised in Jerusalem. And they go to wait. The Spirit of God comes on them. And the gospel over the next 2,000 years goes to the Gentiles. Not much happening with the Jewish people. Very few Jewish people, even in the whole land of Israel. Very few Jewish believers. Until our day. Now there are hundreds of Messianic congregations all over the United States. There are uh, uh, 200 in Israel alone. There are more Jewish people on earth who believe than ever before. So we're at the end of that 2,000 year period where he's come back to the Jewish people and they're realizing it's him and they're welcoming him. Now we can see that in Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew chapter 23, you know, he gives the seven woes to the Pharisees. And then he ends it by saying, you know the famous passage. You are not, to the Jews of Jerusalem, you will not see me again until you, the Jews of Jerusalem, say, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here's what you don't know from just reading that. Is that if I'm saying, I... When I'm at home in Israel, and if I invite, invite Stu and Millie over to my house for Shabbat dinner, and I open up the door, I hear the knock on the door, the first thing I say is, Bauchim Habaim. Bauch Haba. Well, that was plural for Bauch Haba. Welcome. Come in. Bauchim Habaim. Come in. Welcome. That's how you welcome somebody. In addition, it's how a bridegroom a bride and a bridegroom is crawled into the wedding. Paul did it at my wedding. And then the bride comes in. And the bridegroom. Yeshua says, you're not going to see me again until you say to me, you're the bridegroom. We welcome you. Come in. And we're in the beginning of that period right now. Now we see this prophetically played out in the life of Joseph. Joseph was one of the greatest pictures of Yeshua. He was rejected by his brothers and received by the Gentiles, so much so that he became the most powerful man in the world, just like Yeshua. Rejected by his brothers, becomes the most powerful man. There is nobody who is more known than Jesus. I remember John Lennon. You remember this, maybe. He said, the Beatles are more popular, more famous than Jesus Christ. And maybe on that day they were. But you see, he's got staying power. And he has steadily increased over 2,000 years. <laughs> and at the end of the story, Joseph, 
He reveals himself to his brothers. And that's the day that we're living in now. We're one by one. Yeshua is revealing himself to the Jewish people. And they're saying, You are the one. You are the Messiah. We get it. We receive you. We welcome you. I was 18 years old. And the last thing I was looking for was Jesus. I can guarantee you that. I was not religious. But I knew one thing. As a Jewish young man, I did not believe in Jesus. But he revealed. So, John chapter 2, it's a prophetic picture. He starts in Jerusalem, goes to the nations, but then comes back to the Jewish people. Now, go to Romans chapter 11. Romans 11, can I give you a little bit of background? Thank you. Please. <laughs> Let me tell you why Romans was written. Why is Paul talking about the Jewish people so much in Romans? He talks a little bit in Ephesians chapter 2, a little bit in chapter 3, but Galatians and Colossians. But in Romans, he is focused laser on God's plan for Israel. Why? See, what happened in 49, this is less than 20 years after Yeshua rose from the dead. The Jews were kicked out of Rome. Did you know that? They were exiled. Every Jew was kicked out of Rome in exile. You read about it in Acts 18, verse 1, when uh, Paul meets Aquila and Priscilla. And it says they had come from Rome because of the exile. We know from history, a dude by the name of Suetonius, a historian, he wrote that all the Jews, thousands and thousands of Jews, were kicked out of Rome because of somebody by the name of Crestus, which sounds a lot like Christos. Nobody knows who this Crestus fellow is, but I do know who Christos was. Messiah, Christ, Christos, Crestus, Jesus. And so it's believed by many scholars that the Jews were kicked out because of infighting in the Jewish community over who is this Messiah Jesus. Is he the Messiah? Is he not? And, and by the way, if you're Claudius... He was the emperor at the time. If you're Claudius and you're looking at these Jews fighting over whether this one person is the Messiah, is God, and you, if you're Caesar, you are a God. And, and you're, th you're looking at these, you, what, first of all, one God, really? We got Jews, we got, not Jews. <laughs> when you mix Jupiter and Zeus, you get OJ, <laughs> Jews. <laughs> Zeus, Jupiter, you know, uh, 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 Thor, is he in there somewhere? Is that a different one? <laughs> Mars, thank you. All these gods and Caesar. So he probably got a little fed up with these Jews and kicked them out of Rome. For five years they were gone. And it's believed that during that time that the, the Romans, they became the first Christians to embrace replacement theology. If you read Romans carefully, Romans 19 and 11, it's clear that Paul is combating something that they believed, something that they embraced. Why else is he saying, has God rejected Israel? God forbid, by no means. Literally in the Greek, it's may it never be. He's correcting them because they had believed that God had rejected Israel. Why? They were gone for five years. They were kicked out of Rome. And they began to say, well, obviously God has cursed the Jewish people. They rejected the Messiah. Now, now it's us, the Gentiles, the church. 
Paul hears about this. Probably he got an email from Priscilla and Aquila when they returned. And he was alarmed. And so he went and wrote the book of Romans to correct this replacement theology. The Jews, as they came back in 54, were not received into the congregation. And Paul writes back, and he says, guys, don't you understand? I, I mean, it's great that you guys are born again, but I would give my salvation. Romans 9, I could wish myself accursed and cut off from the Messiah for the sake of my brothers, the people of Israel. Now, that's, that is not an easy prayer to pray. I've never prayed a prayer like that for anyone. I don't think you can pray like that unless the Spirit of God is working inside of you. Moses, when, Paul, when, when uh, uh, God, not Paul, <laughs> when God said to Moses, I'm going to start over with you, he said, no. If you're going to start over, then blot me out of your book. Whoa. You see, that's the type of intercession that moves the heart of God. And Paul prays that in Romans. He said, I'd give up my salvation for the Jewish people. And he's saying, Romans, can't you feel God's heart for his firstborn? Now, that does not mean that God loves the Jewish people more than any other nation. Not at all. And here's what you need to understand. God honors Israel as his firstborn because as any, in any big family, the firstborn has a special place, but he also has special responsibility. Not only are the rewards greater, but the judgment is greater too. Romans chapter 2, he talks about judgment first for the Jew than for the Gentile. So if you're wishing that you were Jewish, don't. I meet believers, oh, I wish I was Jewish. No, you don't. Have you heard of the Holocaust? Jewish people have, been, have suffered 52 attempted genocides. Now, maybe it's cool today in America to be Jewish, and maybe it's not. You know, a lot of white supremacists now. But you don't want to be Jewish. You know, Rev Tebby, remember him? Fiddle on the Roof? I know we're the chosen people, but maybe you could choose somebody else once in a while. It wasn't so easy to be part of the chosen people. And now here we are 20 years after the resurrection and already Gentiles are saying God's finished with the Jews. Let me, let me finish my point real quick. That God's called Abraham not because the Jews were so special, but to use the Jews to reach you, to reach the nations, to reach America, to reach Russia, to reach Italy. You see, the Jewish people were his vehicle to reach the whole world. He never, ever intended just to reach one nation. That was never part of his plan. From the very first moment that he called Abraham, he said, through you, I'm going to bless the whole world. And then a little later, he said, I'm changing your name to father of many nations. So God does love Israel's physical seed, but he raised up the physical seed to create this awesome spiritual seed, which can be seen in Joseph's coat of many colors. Amen. Jesus is Joseph, ruler of the nations, and he's got Africa on his arm. He's got Croatia on his chest. God loves the nations. But he does not like it when those nations who have suddenly come into covenant with him and they found eternal life that they then look at the older brother who's fallen away and say, you deserved it. 
That does not move the heart of God. In fact, if you read what Paul says here in Romans, it's pretty intense. He compares the people of God to an olive tree. And he says that the Jewish people, they were natural branches. Some of them were broken off. And you, you're a wild olive branch, and, and miraculously you're grafted in. Because if you know anything about horticulture, and the only reason I do is because of this passage. I didn't take it in college or anything. You cannot graft in a wild olive branch into a natural tree. It'll take, but it will never bear fruit. It'll grow, but without fruit. God does what is against the laws of nature. And he says, now that I've done this supernatural thing, I've grafted you into my household. You're now part of the commonwealth of Israel. Hallelujah. Don't judge your older brother. Pray for him. Love him. Reach out to him. Here's what he says. Look at verse 18. Do not consider yourself superior to those other branches, the Jews who fell off. If you do consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Don't be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches... He will not spare you either. Wow. I, I mean, I, I remember the first time I read Romans, King James. I was like, did not spare thee. thee thou. I didn't understand anything. It took me a few years to understand that. If you're arrogant against the natural branches, he will not spare you either. And then he says later on in verse 22, consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, Israel, but kindness to you, the Gentiles, provided that you continue in his kindness, in parentheses, to the Jewish people. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Wow. By the way, look at the Catholic Church. I, I know Catholics who were born again, but by and large, the Catholic Church was a church that hated the Jewish people, that got rid of Passover, got rid of Hanukkah, that created new holidays, that persecuted the Jewish people, that burned many alive because after becoming new Christians or Maranos, that's what they called new converts who were Jews, means pig, they would then, if you were caught doing anything Jewish, you would be put in jail. You'd be burned alive. It would be better to just say, no, I don't believe, and they'd kick you out of the country. But if you claim to believe, and then you, if you just refuse to eat pork, that would be grounds. They had religious spies, just like in Iran, that would pretend to be your friend, and then they'd go back and say, hey, Shmuel over there, honoring the Sabbath. Get him. Catholic Church did exactly what Paul begged them not to do. Do not be arrogant against the natural branches. Do not judge. What happens? You become like them. You Whatever you judge, you become. You look at Israel, dead religion, full of works, righteousness. Catholic Church becomes a pretty dead religion, full of works, righteousness. You look at Judea, make a lot. Of, we make a lot of stuff up that is not in the Bible. Look at Catholicism, purgatory. Where's that in the Bible? And the key to getting your relatives out of purgatory was money. You could bribe God to get your relatives out. And that's how the church got rich. That's how they built all these great buildings that we go see in Rome through false theology. 
Okay, but here's the good part. In our day, God's doing a new thing. God is raising up Gentile believers all over the world who love the Jewish people, who are praying for the Jewish people. The very thing that, 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 that Paul said in verse 11, and he says salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious, jealous. And then verse 12, for if Israel's transgressions, transgression means riches for the world, and their loss, riches for the Gentiles, how much, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? Now that is one of the most powerful verses in the Bible, but you got to read it a few times before you understand what he's saying. There was a golfer by the name of John Daly. You, you've probably heard of him maybe. He, was a, he, he, he won two majors, which is not easy. Most golfers never win one major. And nine other tournaments he won. And he uh, was overweight. He was an alcoholic. He used to drink a fifth of whiskey every single day. That's like three or four bottles of wine or a case of beer every day. He gambled away, according to his biography, $50 million. Destroyed hotel rooms, divorced three times, chain smoker. Now you might go up to John Daly and say, John Daly, goodness gracious. You won two majors and nine other tournaments and you're a lunatic. Imagine if you would quit drinking, quit smoking, and quit, quit uh, uh, overeating and not destroying hotel rooms, get control of your temper, and focused on golf. You'd be the greatest golfer ever. That was the potential he had. He never reached it. That's what Paul's saying about the Jewish people. We rejected the gospel. Now, I know not everyone. The, the, the apostles were Jewish. When Paul comes to Jerusalem, the Bible says that James says, look how many myriads of Jews believe. Myriads means tens of thousands. So 30, 40,000. Look how many 30, 40,000 Jews believe and are zealous for the Torah. And, and that was a good thing. He was saying that was a good thing. I've heard, I've heard someone saying that he was criticizing them. Ah, oh, and they're zealous for the Torah, the word of God. Oy. So there was a great Jewish revival, but at the end of the day, the Jewish leadership, they, they decided he's not the Messiah. And despite that rejection, Paul says, riches came to the Gentiles. Now let's look at that word riches. Why? Because he says the result of the Jewish people in the end times accepting the gospel will be greater riches so if we start at riches, then what we know that, you know, it, riches is X, right? So when we get to the end times and there's Jewish acceptance of the Bible, we get greater X. Now what we have to figure out is what is X? What are riches, right? You took algebra, right? You get the X and then you got to figure out what X is based on the rest of the equation. Well, X obviously is the book of Acts. Paul says the Gentiles to the Jewish rejection of the gospel, Acts 8, 7 rather, Stephen is killed and they start to spread out. They start to go to Samaria. And then eventually, eventually after Acts 10, they realize that Gentiles can be born again and they start going all over the world. He says through their rejection, 
that caused persecution, which caused the gospel to go to other nations through their rejection, through them doing the wrong thing. Riches, revival came to the nations. You can read about it in Acts. He says, when the Jewish people accept the gospel, it's going to be greater than the book of Acts. Greater riches. Now it's easy to be in an area where there is not revival and say, well, that's not happening. Go to China. I've been to Africa. I have seen blind eyes open. I've seen so many lame people healed that it became boring. I'm telling you, I was there with Reinhard Bonnke in 2009, I think. And I'm telling you, a blind person, blind person, lame person, lame person. And I'm like, all right, it's time for dinner. I mean, it, it became so normal in a matter of an hour. I'd never seen anything like it. A two-year-old girl had never seen. By the way, two-year-olds, you can't pay them to fake miracles. She comes up on the stage, and she's touching everything. The microphone, the this. She has never seen. And the mother comes up and says, my child was born blind, but now she can see. That's happening today. The key to the greater riches revival is Jewish acceptance. In 1948, there was less than a million believers in China. Israel becomes a nation again. Next thing you know, we're up to 160 million in China. In 1966, Time Magazine wrote on the cover of one of their magazines, Is God Dead? Because of the lack of fire in churches. And then in 1967, Jerusalem is restored. And next thing you have, the Jesus Revolution. Some of you were born again in that. And the, and, and the thousands of Jewish people came to faith in that. So you had three things. Physical restoration of Jerusalem, Jewish revival, Gentile revival. In the 1990, 91, 92, the, the, suddenly the iron wall comes down and a million Jews come out of the former Soviet Union back to Israel. And next thing you know, you've got the Toronto revival. You've got the Brownsville revival. Let's go back even further. 1897, Theodore Herzl declares the First World Zionist Congress advocating for the rebirth of the Jewish homeland in ancient Israel. And at that very time, there's a move of God in the church of God. This is before Azusa Street. About eight, nine years before, people start praying in tongues. And then just after Herzl dies in 1904, two years later, 1906, William Seymour, we talked about him earlier. Restoration of the gifts of the Spirit. And that revival went all over the world. There's a connection between the restoration of Israel and the greater riches revival. And it's going to get more and more and more and more intense until the coming of the Lord. Yeshua is not going to return to a bride that where her, her, her clothes are battered and beat up and she's got a black eye and that's not who he's returning to. And he's not returning to a disinterested bride. Imagine when, when Paul sang those words, and I was about to walk in and then I see my bride reading People magazine. Eh. That would have been a damper on our wedding. 
When Yeshua comes back, he's not going to come back to a backslidden bride. Part of the reason of the great tribulation is to purify the body of believers so that we're hungry and we want. Now, give me, can I just have a couple more minutes? I'm making up for lost time. <laughs> I got 20 minutes? Wow, I won't take that long. <laughs> the book of Revelation is not the story of the Antichrist. The Antichrist is not even the most powerful person on earth during the Great Tribulation. The Bible says in... Well, let me just say this. When I was a brand new believer... Now, I don't want, listen, let me just say this about the rapture. I am not here to judge anybody. Read your Bibles, make up your own mind. Here's the key be ready to go if it's seven years before the coming of the Lord, but also be ready to stay just in case you got it wrong. <laughs> Live your life that if Jesus came back right now with the rapture, you're ready to go, but also. Live your life so that you're strong, and if suffering comes, you're not going to fall. Because the Bible does speak about a great falling away in the end times. And I hope to God it's not people who have been promised that they're going to escape early, and then the next thing you know, they're being persecuted. I don't believe in that stuff. Give me that mark. I mean, it's just a thought. I don't want to put a damper on the meeting, but... Be ready to stay. And it's going to, as a new believer, when people told me that I get to, I, I got a little ticket to get out seven years early, I was depressed. I was like, I, we, I was young and zealous on fire. I, want, man, I, I don't want to go. I want to be here. I would, that, why would I want to be up in heaven when, you know, the, I want to be preaching the gospel? Now then somebody told me about People pulling out my fingernails and things like that. Nah, maybe I'll go. <laughs> but there's grace to suffer as a martyr. Look at uh, Stephen. He wasn't crying. He was, oh, please don't hit me. He, he didn't even know what they were doing. He's, uh, I see Jesus. You know, Peter, we're going to, or what's his name, Stephen? We are going to stone you with rocks. It's going to hurt. I'm in Colorado, so I had to clarify that it's with rocks. <laughs> There's Jesus standing at the right hand. Oh, hallelujah. He didn't even see those people with stones. So there's grace to go through difficult times. But during this time, there's 144,000 Jews, if we understand it correctly, and maybe we don't, but we look through a glass darkly, and we try. And these Jews, they go to Mount Zion, where the Lamb of God anoints them and gives them a new song to sing, which I personally believe is a new anointing for evangelism. Because just after that, it speaks about an angel going out with the eternal gospel. Remember we talked about an unseen world? There's a seen world, which is the 144,000. But then in the unseen world, there is an angel preaching the gospel through these 144,000. And then at the end of that chapter, it says there are two harvests. And I believe one is a harvest of souls. And then the second, for those who don't receive, it's a harvest of judgment. There's going to be revival. 
And then we've got these other two guys, the, the, the two witnesses. They're, they're more like two prophets because the Bible says they prophesy for three and a half years. But they're also witnesses. What do they give witness to? To Yeshua. Don't. Antichrist has just built a temple for the Jewish people. They got the sacrifices going. Everybody's excited. Then, according to Revelation 13, he suffers a fatal, fatal wound but lives. You understand what that? When, when you suffer a fatal wound, you are? When you live, you are? Right. So what do you think he says? Hey, hey, I did what Jesus did. I'm him. And he goes into the temple, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, and declares himself to be God. And the Jews are terrified. And he's like, I'm going to kill all of you. I am going to attack Jerusalem. With this. And then these two witnesses show up. you got to put the Bible together with the Bible. And it says they breathe fire. And nobody can touch them for three and a half years because they breathe fire. And the Antichrist is not the most powerful person on earth. It is these two witnesses. They cannot get to Jerusalem for three and a half years because they are in the holy city prophesying and keeping him out. Until just before the coming of the Lord, they die. They raise from the dead. They go up to be in heaven. And then according to Zechariah 14, the Antichrist armies do finally attack Jerusalem. Revelation 16, 16 does not speak of the battle of Armageddon. There is no such thing as the battle of Armageddon. The Bible never speaks about the battle of Armageddon. Unless they're going to kill each other because it's just a big field. The valley of Harmageddon. There's a few people that live there, but it's not where you want to... If you're trying to do damage in Israel, there's not a whole lot of folks there. A lot of farmers. It says they gather in the valley of Harmageddon. Why do they gather there? Because they can't get to Jerusalem until the two witnesses are dead. And then they attack Jerusalem, and Jesus comes back. Hallelujah. And he defeats them. And then it says, Viyom and in that day, the Lord's name shall be one. And it says that he will reign from Jerusalem. God gave us an imagination so we could think about these things. Think about Yeshua's coming back. He's coming back as a lion, as a king. He's coming back to reign. You know, I look at all the flags and you know, we get the corral over there, thank God, as a guest speaker, your biggest fear. It's not demons manifesting. It's not a psycho coming in with a gun. It is an uncontrolled flag person on the front row. I normally wear protective goggles, but since we had the corral, I figured I was safe. But you see, Jesus comes back as king. And when we got flags and we have banners, that's pageantry. It's, 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 you understand the word procession? Elon and I were, I'm going to close right here. Elon and I were at home a few weeks ago getting ready to go to Jacksonville. Getting ready to catch our plane and we had about an hour in Wimbledon, the finals. The women's final was about to begin and ESPN, they did this beautiful five minute uh, 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 
segment on the majesty of Wimbledon. Now, Wimbledon is different than any. First of all, it's a major, but it's even more, it's different than the other majors because it's England. There's a queen. You know, there's the Thames River, Big Ben. It's majestic. You know, I think the U.S. Open, has that started any minute now, right? You've got hot dogs and taxi drivers. It's different. And at the end of this montage of Wimbledon, you've got Borg and McEnroe, Chris Everett, Martina Navratilova. It was emotional. It was really well done, and I'm crying. And then I had three thoughts. I said to myself three things. Number one, I said, well, okay, it, that, that, that's an earthly crown. That, it, all right, it's, you know, bleh. You know, McEnroe, if he somehow sneaks his way in, they're not, oh, he won Wimbledon, you're amazing. No, it's not going to be like that. Second thought I had was, too bad we don't have anything like this in the kingdom of God. A monarchy, majesty, pageant. It's too bad we don't have that. But I'm very smart. So within a matter of 30 seconds, I said, oh, but we do. We do have that. The Feast of Tabernacles, they're commanded to wave the palm branches and to celebrate for seven days. We used to do a big thing in Gaithersburg for the Feast of Tabernacles. People would be waving and there'd be pageantry. And it's choreographed. And I'm going to be honest with you, Paul, don't get mad at me, but I never liked it. And the reason I'm ADD, so if it, it, it I, sometimes it takes a little bit of concentration. And I'd look at the flags and the, them. it's not, and I'd be like, it's not like Jesus is here. Now that would be different. If Jesus was here, well then it will, oh, you are here. Can you imagine if we could grasp that revelation when we worshiped corporately together? If, if we could come together in worship and we had that understanding of the same line of the tribe of Judah who's going to come out of heaven when there is a shout and the trumpet blast and he comes back as a king, as a lot. If we could have that same understanding in corporate worship that he's right here, that he's receiving our worship. Pageantry. So Lord, we thank you that you are coming back as king. Father, we thank you that in the unseen world, they see you as king. You know what they don't do in the unseen world? They don't check Facebook during worship. <laughs> Say amen or oh me. <laughs> I'm guilty too. And that's just because we, 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 don't, we don't discern the presence of God. Remember David, and he's bringing the ark up, and they're dancing, and they're shouting, and then the ark almost falls, and Uzzah goes, he's dead. He's dead. He's dead. God, what are you doing? David was not happy. Says he was angry. Uzzah did not discern the holiness of God. Oh, gosh, if we could do that, if I could do that, if I could understand that when we say he's with us, that he really is with us, how awesome would that be? That when we worship, that we'd really be worshiping. So Paul, if you would come back. Brandon. I'm just going to pray and then invite Stu back up here. Let's just stand to our feet. He is king.
Yeshua is king. If we could just sing one song, Paul, and before, Stuart, before you come and receive an offering, just something to honor Jesus as king. He's coming. Just imagine the king coming in the clouds. The Bible says that the survivors of that great war will be commanded, Zechariah 14, 16, to come to Jerusalem year after year to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Can you imagine Picture this. It's Jerusalem. Jesus is king. Hallelujah. And then every year, you've got them coming from Africa. They're coming from Ireland. They're, they're coming from Italy. They're, they're coming from China. You see, I believe that God gives us a picture in earthly kings, ungodly kings. It gives us a, a dark Barely can be seen picture of what a monarchy is like so we can discern it when it really happens. So if you think back to the movies we've seen of Rome and Egypt, there's always a delegation, you know, that there'd be that dude that would tell the king, they've come from Egypt or they've come from here. And they'd come and they'd honor the king. Now imagine that in Jerusalem, but it's a real king and a genuine monarchy. The king of kings, the God of gods, the Lord of lords. And they come from Africa with their drums. And they come from Scotland with their bagpipes. And they worship God through their own culture. Because he is the, 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 the man who can wear the coat of many colors. So let's take a moment right now and worship our King Yeshua. Yeshua.